Well, it's good to be here again with you all this morning. Um, I thought about, I thought about maybe just not preaching because honestly, what what Jade had to say up here for a communion meditation, it was like, I, I almost my first point word for word. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know that I even need to because he did it better than I'm going to, and I'm going to take a lot longer to do it. So um, that's a threat. Um, so anyway. Um, Merry Christmas to everybody. Um, it's, it, it, whew, it really is good to be here with you all. I thought we could start today, since Jade preached my sermon, we're going to start with a, uh, with a fun game, okay? So uh, I want to know, how many of y'all are done with all of your family Christmas celebrations? How many of you are done with your family Christmas celebrations? Okay. How many of you have one more to go? How many of you have two or more to go? How many of you have three or more family Christmas celebrations to go? Three or more? Three. How many of you have more than three celebrations to go? Okay. All right. Wait a minute. For, for real? Hang on. Hang on. We're counting still. Four to go. Like, still have four to do. Wow. Whew. Okay. All right. So I think I think four's the winner. Um, all right. Well, next question: How many of you take, have taken your Christmas tree down already? Ooh, good. I was going to say that's too soon. Like you would have had to do it like on Christmas or the next morning. So I'm glad you still have your trees up. How many of you plan on taking your tree down this afternoon? Okay. So a couple of you. All right. All right. Well, I don't know that we'll get to that quite yet. But uh, anyway, I just wanted to tease y'all. Uh, so good. Good. Did you all have a good Christmas? Would you tell me if you didn't? No? Okay. All right. Good. That would be awkward, I think. But, well, um, we have at least one more Christmas Sunday. Um, We'll kind of touch on Christmas a little bit next week. But together here, we have one more Christmas Sunday today. And we're going to continue to look at the birth of Jesus. Um, I don't want us just to look once and talk about the sweet baby and then move on. Um, So... We're going we're gonna to talk about Christmas a little bit again today, but uh, before we do this, before we dive into our text today, which in case you didn't get it, it's going to be in Matthew. Uh, Matthew chapter 2 will be our text for today. Um, but um, before we do that, we need to remember a few things that we talked about last week. And if you weren't here last week, that's okay. We're going to give you a quick recap on what we talked about. Um, because what we need to remember as we open Matthew's gospel is that he was writing to a very specific audience. He was writing to a first century Jewish audience, at least primarily to a first century Jewish audience. Now, there are some things that were included for Gentiles in there also, but primarily he was writing to a Jewish audience here in the first century. Which means that we need, to, we need to think at least a little bit like a first century Jewish audience would think. We need to understand what Matthew is saying from that perspective, at least some. Okay. Now, that also changes the way that we, we talked about last week, how that changes the way we hear Matthew's claims about who Jesus is. Okay, so I just want to give you a quick recap on who Matthew is claiming that Jesus is. Through the language he uses, Matthew is claiming that Jesus is the king of Israel, the rightful king of Israel, that he is the promised Messiah, that he was a man, but he was still the divine son of God. Okay, through the language he uses in Matthew 1, he is claiming that he's not only the king, but he is also the Messiah, that he is a man, but he is also God. Okay, so we need to remember that that's what he's saying. That's what he said in, first, in, in the first chapter of his gospel. And in chapter 2, then Matthew turns his attention to show how we need to respond to this king. 
to this Messiah, to this God-man, showing how we should respond to him. See, the way he does this, the way he does this in the second chapter is by introducing us to several new characters. We're introduced to several new characters, and we see how they respond to news of Jesus. Okay, And it makes me wonder, just a little bit, um, how we would respond to news of Jesus. How we would respond to the news of a Messiah, of a King, of a God-man. How would we respond to him? Steph and I were actually talking about this this week, um, and we asked ourselves, like, okay, so if we lived in the first century, if we lived, uh, or maybe right before the first century, okay, uh, regardless, okay, if we lived when Jesus was born, what would we have thought? Who would we have been? Would we have believed that this is the King of Israel? Or would we write it off like, okay, this is some crazy lady out in a stable? Like, what would we have thought? But see, I think the way that we respond is really important. Just, just Friday night, whenever we were here for a Christmas Eve service, I, I mentioned a quote by A.W. Tozer that says, um, what you think about God is probably the most important thing about who you are. Like, it, it dictates everything that you do and in, in everything about you. Because if you have a high, thought, a high view of God, and, and then you're probably going to act like you have a high view of God. If you think God is just another person like us, you're probably going to treat God like he's another person like us. Okay, so, so how we respond to Jesus, how we respond to this king that Matthew is claiming has come, how we respond to this Messiah is going to tell an awful lot about us. So, how we respond to him is important. But see, I want to talk, to, I want to talk not only about how we respond to Jesus. Like, we, we think about Jesus and we think, okay, so are we going to respond by receiving Jesus? Are we going to, are we going to turn? Are we going to run away? But not just... Not just who Jesus is, but also news about what Jesus has said. How are we going to respond to what Jesus has said? How are we going to respond to what Jesus did? How are we going to respond to news of Jesus? Because we have an awful lot of news about Jesus. And for, I know a lot of you are like, you've been Christians for a really long time. And you're thinking, well, this isn't really new to me anymore. There's still an awful lot in this book that could be new to you. Still an awful lot in God's word that could be new to you. So how do we respond to news of Jesus? So my goal today as we look at Matthew chapter 2 is to, to have you ask yourself, how will I respond? How will I respond to news of Jesus? Okay, So I would like it if we could read Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. Would you all stand with me out of respect for reading God's word? Matthew chapter 2, beginning of verse 1. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible like I usually do. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising, and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people, and asked them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them, to, asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. 
When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Thank God for his word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, God, as we come to this time, as we open your word, and we look to see uh, the words that you inspired, that Matthew wrote, that show us who you are and show us how we should respond to you. Father, I pray that we would honestly ask ourselves how we respond to news of our Savior. Father, and I pray that you would help us to respond rightly. Uh, Father, that we wouldn't look at Christmas and think oh, about the, the sweet baby or, or even think about the silent night and the, the pretty nativity scenes, but instead we would think about our King, that we would think about our Savior, that we would think about our God who came for us and, and news of Him and what, what you have said through your word. God, and I pray that you would help us to respond rightly. That we might not respond with rejection or complete indifference or, or by playing with the box. But instead, Lord, I pray that we would respond with worship. So, Father, help us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So how will I respond to news of Jesus? I think as we see these characters, we see how different, different characters respond to who Jesus is. And I think we can respond in similar fashion to these characters. So that's kind of what I would like to do. I would like to look at these characters or groups of characters that we meet in today's text. And I would like to see how they respond and then ask ourselves, how will I respond to news of Jesus? Okay, the first character that I would like to bring up is Herod. Is Herod, King Herod, as he's introduced. And like Herod, we can respond with rejection. Again, word for word, I think that's pretty, pretty close anyway to what Jade said just a few moments ago. We can respond by rejecting news of Jesus. See, Herod, as you read the Gospel of Matthew, he's portrayed as this evil conniving monster, right? Most of you know the story of who Herod is, and we're going to talk about it more next week. Um, but he's portrayed as this villain, right? But I asked myself as I was reading this text this week, who is this King Herod? I mean, who is he really? Like, what do we know about him? Because the text tells us very little about who he is. We don't know much about him based off of Matthew's gospel. But again, remember, we're a first century Jewish audience. These people knew who Herod was. They knew who he was. Okay? So let's, let's think about who he is for just a moment. Because history actually tells us a great deal about Herod. See, we find as we study history that Herod was actually a, a military leader who came to power at a pretty young age. He was in his mid-20s whenever he became the military leader over all of the area of Galilee. So he was already impressive in his early 20s. And we learned that in the Roman Empire, he sided with Mark Antony. And if you don't know much about him, that's okay. He was basically wound up in a civil war with, with a guy named Octavian, who we're going to talk about more here in just a moment. But as Mark Antony lost in the civil war, um, Herod, through some political maneuvering, wound up switching sides from Antony's side over to Octavian's side. Yeah, pretty impressive. So far, he's doing good, right? So that way, whenever Antony was defeated... This guy named Octavian became known as Caesar Augustus. Um, some of you may have heard of him. Um, anyway, now, now Herod is ruling this area under Augustus. And when he was given authority, he was very quick to remove any opposition to his authority. Herod was quick to remove any opposition to his authority by means of execution. Yeah, anybody who opposed him was executed. 
even to the point that he executed his own wife because she was a member of the previous ruling family. Yeah, Herod didn't want anything to infringe upon his rule, his power, his authority. And he was going to do whatever it took to make sure that he had power. We find, we know from history that Herod himself was not a Jewish man. Instead, he was an Edomite, which means that he was from, you have these two brothers, you have Jacob and you have Esau. He was from Esau's family line rather than Jacob's family line. So, not a Jewish man himself. We learn that he took control of the high priesthood, um, by means of force, by the way, um, while the position had traditionally been passed down by family line. Uh, under Herod, it was no longer based off a of family line. It was based off of whoever, whoever Herod decided to appoint to the position. So, we learned that he took control that way. And all of these things sound very negative, and rightfully so, but history tells us that he was known as Herod the Great. So why was he known as Herod the Great if he did all of these wicked, evil things? Well, again, he was a great military strategist. Okay? Won some impressive military victories. Further, he completed some, some really impressive building projects, the greatest of which we actually have a slide in here for was the temple. Okay? Now we have the first temple, which was Solomon's temple, which is this one over here on the left, um, which was built long before Herod. But of course it was destroyed whenever the Jewish people were exiled. So it was rebuilt. I hope that most of you know that. We just talked about Nehemiah who came back to rebuild the walls. That was right after Ezra oversaw the rebuilding of the temple. So the second temple was built under Ezra and, and Zerubbabel. It was built at that point, And we have what was known as the second temple. But Herod came along and he said, you know what, we can do better than this. We're going to improve this. So he undertook this grand building project to, to refurbish the temple. As Steve and I talked about, God gave pretty clear, pretty clear instructions for how the temple was to be built. Herod just kind of threw those out the window and wanted an impressive building project. So he came in, and just so you all know, this is roughly the size of Herod's temple. This right here, um, this is the size of an American football field. Just to give you some perspective how big this building is. Okay, so he undertook this building project... And to accomplish the project, Herod had 1,000 priests trained in skilled labor so that they could build the sanctuary. And to build the entire facility, the whole thing, he had trained 10,000 skilled workmen for the project. 10,000 workmen to build this temple. The historian Josephus actually said that the outside of the temple was adorned with so much gold that when the sun shone upon it, it virtually blinded those who looked at it. This was an impressive building project, and this was one of the many that Herod managed to complete in his, in his rule. So, why was Herod known as Herod the Great? Well, because he did do some impressive things. But what do we know about this guy? Well, we know that his character was nothing worth writing home about. He was not an impressive man based off of his character. Which is why Matthew portrays him as an evil man. As a matter of fact, as Herod gets older at the time of Jesus' birth, or roughly there in the few years following that, um, we find that Herod became increasingly paranoid to the point that he had his three oldest sons executed because they were trying to grab his power. Um, and there is some evidence to suggest that they were, in fact, trying to grab his power. Um, but, like the father, like the son, here you have it. So, this is Herod. This is what we know about him. And this is the man who was the vassal king over Judah at the time of Jesus' birth. This is the man that Matthew is introducing us to here in Matthew chapter 2. Herod was in charge. Doesn't want anybody infringing upon his territory. And just a quick side note. Um, we don't know how many of the wise men came at this time. We know that Herod was disturbed by their coming. Uh, but we also know that all of, 
all of Jerusalem was disturbed with him, which means it had to have been a pretty decent-sized crowd. We, we always depict three wise men, and maybe there were just three, but there were enough that everyone was disturbed in Jerusalem. Um, so take that for what you want. But we find that Herod receives them, and whenever he receives these wise men and find why they came, coming looking for the king of the Jews, we know what Herod says. He calls for the priests and the scribes to find out where this, this so-called king was to be born. Because remember, Herod is ruler over this area. So he hears news of a king of the Jews who he has brought into subjection to himself. Oh, wait, there's a, that, that's not going to work out very good, is it? It seems like we have a problem. There's already a king over this area, and now they're saying, wait, there's a king of the Jews here. Okay, now Herod has a problem. Now, I know Herod here says, well, well show me where he is so I can go worship him too. Of course, we know what Herod was really doing, right? Uh, if you don't know the story, go read the rest of chapter 2, and you'll find what he was after. He was trying to destroy his opposition. So, he calls for the priests and the scribes to find out where this king was supposed to be born. And we find out in verse 7 that Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time that the star appeared. Herod didn't want to take any chances. He wanted to know exactly when it appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, report back to me so that I too can go worship him. And we know of Herod's ill intentions. And he didn't want to go worship the child. He wanted to eliminate the problem. And the point is that oftentimes I think we too are faced with how to respond with news of Jesus. Okay, we hear news of a king, right? We just talked last week about how Jesus was, was, Matthew was talking about Jesus as if he is the king of Israel, like he's the rightful king. So how do we respond to that news? See, we may not be kings and queens in our own right, like Herod, right? We're not saying, well, I'm the, I don't think anybody in this room would say I'm the king of Mount City. Anybody? Um, that would be weird if you said yes. Um, I don't think we have a king in Mount City. Um, some of you might disagree, but I don't think we do. So, most of us are not kings and queens, but like this, we like to think that we have our own area of authority. Our own area that we rule, right? Like our our own lives, at least. We think, well, I'm in charge of my life. I control which direction I go. I control what I do, what I say, how I live, what's going to happen around me. I, I have some control over things. And we like to claim authority on our own. At least to some, some degree. Now, it may be smaller circles of influence than Herod was concerned about, but we're still, we're still all concerned about ruling our own circles in life. And if you don't believe me, just think about this. And this is, this is, gonna, this is really going to stir the pot for just a moment, okay? Um, if I say bodily autonomy, y'all are going to get riled up about something, whether you're political right or political left. You're going to get fired up about talking about bodily autonomy, right? Because we think about our own area of influence, our own area that we rule, like, I rule my own body. Like, I control what happens in my body. If you're on the political left and you think, well, I rule my own body, which means that if I choose to have an abortion, I can do that. I'm in charge of my body. I rule over my my area of influence. This is my job. This is my responsibility, my authority, my power. Don't infringe on my area on the political left. But then you're on the political right over here. And I know I'm backwards to you all, so just reverse this in your mind. So you're on the political right over here, okay? And you're saying, well, bodily autonomy means that you can't tell me I have to go get a vaccine. You can't tell me this is my body. I'm not, I don't have to do anything. Don't tell me what to do with my body. Okay? And instantly we start to realize, wait a minute, we're saying, I have authority over this area. But you know what the Bible does and news of Jesus does? It says, no, 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 you don't have a right over your own body. Uh-oh. We're saying, I'm king over my area of influence. This is my power, my authority. This is my realm. Don't infringe on this. And we hear news of Jesus, and Jesus says, I don't just want part of it. I want your whole life. Everything you do belongs to me. 
I am the king of your life. Ooh. You mean to tell me that the way I care for my body has something to do with what I believe about Jesus? Huh, yeah, I, I am saying that. Unashamedly so. You telling me that the way I love my wife, you telling me that, that that's not really my area of influence, that's actually, that, that belongs to King Jesus? Yes. Yes, I am. The way that you raise your kids, guess what? Your kids don't really belong to you. They don't belong to you. What, but you're thinking, well, this is my family. This is my area of influence. They don't belong to you. They belong to Jesus. They belong to him. So we hear, wait a minute, Jesus is saying that he has lordship over all of these areas, over my area of influence. Yes. See, and I think a lot of times, like Herod, like Herod, we hear news of Jesus' kingship, of his lordship over, over circles that we think are our area of influence, our area of authority. And I think a lot of times we reject that. We hear that we're supposed to live a certain way. We're supposed to do a certain thing. Okay. We're supposed to love our neighbor. And we think, well, yeah, I don't think I'm going to do that today. Uh, really? Ask yourself, when was the last time you thought, you know, I really need to share the gospel with this person? I have an opportunity to share this gospel with this person. I know I've been commanded to take the gospel to all nations. I know I've been commanded to share the gospel. And then you look and you're like, yeah, but I don't think I want to. It's too uncomfortable. I'm just going to reject what the king says to do. I think like Herod, we can respond with rejection. We can reject the gift that we've been given. That's one way we can respond. Whenever we hear news of Jesus, we can respond with rejection. Second, we can respond with indifference. So the second group of people we're introduced to here are the chief priests and the scribes who respond with this indifference, right? Herod heard from these wise men that the king of the Jews had been born, and he rejects that. He wants to take care of the problem. But since he was disturbed, verse 4 says, He assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he asked them where the Messiah would be born. So Herod assembles all of these religious leaders, and that's important. Remember, these are religious people, okay? These are the religious leaders. And they say, okay, and he says, okay, where is this Messiah, this Christ, this Christos? Where is he supposed to be born? Where is he supposed to be born at? And they respond by saying, well, I'm not really sure because I don't think the scriptures speak to that. Nobody caught that? Like, y'all are asleep then. That's not what it says at all. That's like the opposite of what it says. They say, in Bethlehem of Judea, because this is what was written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. See, these priests and these scribes, they knew where the Messiah was supposed to be born. They knew. They knew the book. Good for them. But you notice that there is absolutely no recording anywhere of any of these priests or scribes coming down to see the king of the Jews. Not a single one is recorded as having come to see Jesus. They know the scriptures. Apparently they know it well enough to quote a portion of Micah. So clearly they know the scriptures. But why, if they claim to believe the scriptures, did they not head down to Bethlehem to see this king of the Jews? Why not? Why wouldn't they? Well, I'm going to speculate for just a moment, which I know is dangerous, but I believe that the reason they didn't go see Jesus was pretty simple. I think it was either, one, a lack of belief in their scriptures... They may have known them, but that doesn't mean they believed them. Or two, they were indifferent. Altogether indifferent about who Jesus was, about who this child was. They were complacent. They were good with what was going on. Charles Spurgeon wrote about those who know the Bible but don't seem to follow its words to Jesus. And he, he says, Such were those chief priests at Jerusalem 
They could tell where the Christ was to bo- where the Christ was born, but they never went to worship him. They were indifferent altogether to him and to his birth. They said, yeah, yeah he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. All right, I'm going to go back to what I was doing now, so stop bothering me. But I asked myself, did they really have it that bad where they were? No, not right now they didn't. They didn't seem to. They had their jobs. They had respect uh, with the Jewish people. um, And they were seen as wise men in their own right. Um, Besides, they had Herod as their king who had appointed them. Remember, Herod had already taken over the priesthood. Um, He'd pretty much appointed who he wanted to that position. So Herod was their king and Caesar was their emperor. So why in the world would they rock the boat when things are really going pretty smoothly? I mean, yeah, there may be a king born down there. There's a, yeah, that's where it's supposed to be, but so what? We're, we're busy right now. But how often do we learn something new about Jesus or what he commands or who he is and think, but, you know, things are really going pretty good right now. I mean, I don't know that I really need to change all that much right now. See, do I really need to rock the boat or can't we just keep things going as they are? Things are really going pretty smooth. Do I need a king over that area of my life? Now, I know most of us are thinking, well, I've never thought that. That sounds terrible, Jared. I'm not that bad of a person. But see, I actually think this is maybe our most common response to news about who Jesus is, this indifference. Um, I, I was thinking about how to, how to best illustrate this, and I thought about our, our Monday night small group. Um, we've been meeting, work, walking through a book called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. Um, and this last week, we talked about the discipline of fasting. Um, and I know I just talked about fasting, I don't know, a month or two ago, so I'm not going to spend too much time on this. But um, we, we talked about fasting and how little we practice the discipline of fasting. I mean, I, I would venture to guess that many, many Christians in the American church have, have never practiced fasting. They've never fasted. Like, the only time they fast is whenever they skip a meal because they've been too busy and they haven't had time to get lunch. Like, that's as far as it gets. And I'm not trying to be hypercritical because I'll tell you the truth, I was the same way until not all that long ago. So I'm there with you. But we neglect what Jesus said. If we go to Jesus' words himself, he just assumes that we will practice this discipline. I mean, if you read, you read the Sermon on the Mount, you read Jesus talking about fasting. He says, when you fast, here's how you do it. Whenever you fast, here's how you do it. It's just assumed that you will. And there's nothing in the New Testament that says, well, you don't need to fast anymore. There's nothing there. So why in the world do we hear news about what Jesus has to say? Why do we hear the word of God? Why do we hear this and we're just like, yeah, but do I really need to do that? You know, is, is me depriving myself of food for a day, is that really going to change God's mind about anything? How often do we respond with complete indifference to news about Jesus and what he said? I mean, just think about it. That's just one discipline. Like, that's just one thing. How often do we really do that, though? How about confess your sins to one another? Oh, huh. you mean I'm actually supposed to tell people that I'm a sinner? You mean that I'm actually supposed to find brothers and sisters who I can confess that sin to? Yeah. I mean, that's what the Bible says anyway. But how often do we hear news of Jesus' kingship over every area of our life and we're like, yeah, but do I really need to do that? Yeah, I know, but, but fasting's for like super religious people, right? No, no, we need to hear news of King Jesus and we need to respond rightly. We need to not start, sit around responding with complete indifference. Complete indifference. You know what the Bible says about those who are indifferent in the end? I think it says lukewarm, actually. It says that they'll be spit out. The Bible has no room for somebody who's riding the fence to the very end. That's not the way it works. Either you submit to King Jesus or you don't. 
I don't know of any place in the Bible where you can see a, much of a middle ground. So, how will you respond to Jesus? Will you respond like Herod with rejection of God's authority over your life? Will you respond with indifference like the chief priests and the scribes do? Or, third, will you respond with worship like the wise men do? We see that these, worship, these, these wise men, they respond with worship. And here's the main characters of this section, right? A lot of this has to do with who these wise men were and what they did. But really, again, like Herod, it doesn't tell us all that much about who they are. We really don't know a lot about who they are. And honestly, these have been some of my favorite characters. Um, several years ago, it's probably been five or six years ago, I got to preach one of my first sermons. And, and I, I remember this was, this was, for some reason, the passage I, I chose. Um, and I talked about the wise men and the shepherds. And who they were. And ever since then, these have been some of my favorite characters. Just because of who they are. And whenever we understand who they are, we understand how crazy this sounds. So who are these wise men? Because again, the text doesn't tell us a lot. We, here's what we know of them whenever we're introduced to them in the Bible. Here's what we know of them. They came from the east. They came to the palace first, right? They go to Jerusalem. They don't go straight to Bethlehem. They go to Jerusalem, so they go to the palace first. We know that they, they must know something of astronomy because they're following a star, right? So we know that. They know something of Jewish tradition because they know that they're supposed to be a king of the Jews who's born and they, they're coming to look for him. So they know something of Jewish tradition and they must be wealthy based off of the gifts that they bring. That's pretty much what we know. Other than the fact that they came to worship this king of the Jews. Okay, that's what we know. But again, who are we today? We're first century Jewish, Jewish people. Okay, first century Jewish people. Which means that they know something that maybe we don't. See, I believe that these people here in the first century, these, this Jewish audience that Matthew is writing to, they know that these people from the east, that these, must, these are most likely pagans who are likely not so much into astronomy as we know it, as they are into astrology, which is like the, study, the religious study of the stars, right? Y'all heard of horoscopes. By the way, this is not a good excuse to go look up your horoscope. It's actually just the opposite. Like, it's pagan nonsense, so... Take that for what you want. Um, anyway, so these guys are most likely not as much into astronomy as they are astrology. We, these first century Jews would have known that these people were from the east, which means that they were most likely from the people who had previously enslaved and deported their ancestors. I mean, from the east. That's where they came from, right? That's where Babylon was. It was to the east. Most likely, these people came from the group of people who hated their ancestors, who murdered their ancestors, deported their ancestors. They would have heard that whenever they heard these wise men from the east. Further, the name Magi, right? You've heard the wise men also called Magi. This word is where we get our word magic, which means that there is at least a decent chance that these men, that they were practicing black magic, that they were practitioners of dark arts. And maybe that's a little bit of speculation because it could also mean that they're just wise men, but there's at least a chance of that. So keep that in mind because I want to touch on that again here in just a moment. So regardless of what they came for, or who they were before they came, we should recognize by now, based off of what we know as first century Jewish men and women, we should know by now that these are probably not the first ones that you or I would expect to see worshiping a Jewish king. These are not the first men that we would expect to have invited to Jesus' birth. I know it may have been a few years after his birth, regardless, okay? So these are the people who were invited to greet King Jesus. These are probably not the people we would have chosen. I mean, just think about it. People who your family has issues with, major issues with, they're the ones that you invite to the birth of your king. Huh. I don't think so. 
Not to mention, these aren't really, like, they're not the button-down, like, real pretty people. Like, they're going to show up wearing a shirt and tie, and they're going to they're gonna look good when they get there. Oh, no, this isn't going to look good. These are your enemies from the east who are going to show up. And keep in mind, these are magi. They're astrologers. They're, they're maybe practicing magic. Like, who knows what these people are doing? Like, this is weird stuff. And why are these the ones that show up here at the nativity scene? Why are they the ones? But you see what they do. Let's just look at what they do. They know that there is a king who's been born. So they travel, to, they travel extraordinary lengths to go find him. And when they do find him, the Bible tells us that they worship him. It's not like they find him and they're like, oh, well, this is cool. Yep, that's neat. No, no, no. They find him and they worship him. The word worship is an important one because it's, it's this, this Greek word. I actually think we have this word in here maybe. Okay, there we go. Proskuneo. Proskuneo is this word um, that means to worship. It means to worship or to bow down. And the idea is actually a compound word between two words. It means pros, which means toward or in the direction of, and kineo, which means to kiss. So the idea of the word proskuneo, it's, it's the idea of falling in front of somebody and kissing the ground before them because you recognize that they are superior to you. So it's like these people, these men, they come in and they see Jesus and they instantly know who this guy is. They know that he is superior to them and they fall to their knees is what it says. It actually says that they fall to their knees, they fall down and they worship like they're kissing the ground before him saying this baby, this child here in this main, probably not in the manger at this point, but regardless, this child in front of them who we know has been laid in the manger, this child is superior to them in every way and they fall on their faces before him and say, we are inferior to you. You are superior to us. We know that these men come and they worship. So the word carries this idea that we don't often think of. We think of worship and we think, okay, well, I'm going to stand, I'm going to sing, and we don't raise our hands very often. But, you know, we sing and we're just maybe eyes closed. Like, it's awkward. What do I do with my hands, right? Um, I, don't, I don't know. And that's what we think of when we think of worship, right? We think of worship. These men, they came and they fell before Jesus. They came and they fell before Jesus recognizing his superiority to them. They come and they worship the king. But they don't just come empty-handed, do they? No, no, no. They bring gifts, right? They bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Still not sure what some of these things are. Like, what is frankincense? I don't know. Um, Anyway, so they bring these gifts. What I do know about them is they're pretty extravagant gifts. They're of pretty great value. And they bring these gifts of great value and they lay them before Jesus. And see, I think we too, we can respond like these wise men. I think whenever we hear news of who Jesus is, we can say, yes, you are superior to us. You are greater than us. You are a king and we can fall before him and we can worship him. Uh, I believe he invites us to do that. So whenever we hear news of the king, of the Messiah, of the son of David, the son of Abraham, who we talked about last week, we need to come and we need to worship. And whenever we come, we should bring with us whatever we have and lay it before the king. It's rightfully his, right? We just talked about this bodily autonomy thing, right? Our areas of influence, bring it before the king and lay it before him, acknowledging that he's superior to you and that it belongs to him anyway. Lay it before him. The truth is, we talk about this, and the, tr- the reality is that Jesus doesn't need you to come and pay for him before he'll accept you or accept your worship. Right? You don't have to come putting $100 bills in front of Jesus just like, here, here, Jesus. Now are you happy enough with me I can worship you? That's not how it works. But instead, these guys bring what they have. And if you don't believe me, just go read Luke's account of the gospel. You'll learn of these poor shepherds who have nothing to bring. They show up, and it's not like, not like they're like, uh-uh, no, sorry, you can't worship because you didn't pay enough. That's not what happens at all. 
Instead, their worship is just as pleasing to them as these wise men. So the point is, we come and we bring Jesus whatever we have. We come offering him our hearts and our lives. And just so you know, I told you about the, the black magic thing, right? Um, there are some scholars who believe that the gold, frankincense, and myrrh were actually articles that they would have used in their, in their practice, in these evil practices. Um, so they bring these things from their past, from their history, and they lay them at Jesus saying, I don't want these anymore, they belong to you. So um, do with that what you want, but that's at least a possibility here in this text. But the point is, whenever we come to Jesus, we bring our lives. And the reason we bring our gifts, whether they're financial, whether they're your talents, whether they're your time, the reason we bring them to Jesus isn't because he needs them. The reason we bring them is because it's a reflection of our heart. You want to know what somebody loves? Look at how they spend their time. You want to know what somebody loves? Look at how they spend their money. Look at how they use their talents. And you're going to know where their heart is. Look at how they spend their lives. So what do we do? We bring our lives to him. See, the Savior that you give little of your time, money, and talents to is one that you don't think very much of. You don't give God your time, your money, and your talents? Well, it's probably because you think little of God. And remember, I told you just a little bit ago, that's the most important thing about who you are. I'm going to quote Spurgeon one more time. Charles Spurgeon said, Those who look for Jesus will see him. Those who truly see him will worship him. And those who worship him will consecrate their substance to him. So we come to Jesus and we can worship the king. We can come to him with worship for the king. So whenever we hear news of Jesus, we can respond with rejection, indifference, or worship. So what? Well, since we just celebrated Christmas yesterday, how are you going to respond to news of Jesus' coming? Let's, let's just talk about his coming. How are you going to respond to news that the king has come? Will you hear the news of Jesus, that he was born, that he lived, that he died? Will you respond to that by rejecting his authority over your life? The truth is, it's his authority whether you give it to him or not. It belongs to him. The question is, will you submit it to him? Will you give him your life? Or will you respond with complete indifference like these, like these scribes and these priests did? And say, well, do I really need to change, right? I think I'm a pretty good guy. You know, I've told you, I've, I've always believed I'm a decent guy. I've, I've always wanted to be a, a quote-unquote good man, you know. I've always wanted that, and I think I'm a pretty decent guy. I'm a nice guy. I think it's funny whenever kids run away from me. It's like, but I'm a nice guy, really. Like, why, why, why can't we be friends? Like, I like, uh, okay, anyway. So anyway, I always think that's funny. Because, you know, I think I'm a good guy, but the truth of the Bible is, I'm not that good a guy. Instead, I'm a filthy, rotten sinner. And yes, I need to change. Yes, I need to change. So whenever we hear news of Jesus and who he is and what he's commanded, will we reject his authority over our life or will we respond with indifference? Or like these wise men, will you respond by worshiping the king, the Messiah, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings that we sang about just a little bit ago? Will we respond by worshiping the king? See, at Christmas, we like to celebrate the coming of this baby, but like we talked about Friday night, this isn't just another baby. This isn't just another child. This isn't just another man. This is the child. This is the man the one who came to free us from our sins. This is God in the flesh. Like, this is the one. Um, I, I can't say it better than he did, so I'm going to quote Charles Spurgeon one more time, and I might as well have just read a sermon from him this morning, but I'm going to read it anyway. It says, A stir began, or a stir begins as soon as Christ is born. He has not spoken a word. He has not wrought a miracle. He has not proclaimed a single doctrine. But when Jesus was born, at the very first, while as yet you hear nothing but infant cries, we can see nothing but infant weakness, still his influence upon the world is manifest. 
When Jesus was born, there came wise men from the east and so on. There is infinite power, even in an infant Savior. You all realize that's who we're celebrating at Christmas time? The one with infinite power. He may come as an infant, but he has infinite power. Jesus came to save, and he has the infinite power that we need to be freed from our sin. So the question then is, will you come to worship him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, Lord, I I can't say it better than Spurgeon did. Um, Father, we're thankful that that infant Savior came with infinite power. Lord, this, this child that we celebrate at Christmas time, this Savior, this King, this Messiah that was born um, in such humble beginnings. Father, whenever we actually stop to think about the fact that that is, that is your flesh, that is, that is your Son, that is our Savior, that is God, who is infinite in power, infinite in holiness, infinite in righteousness, infinite in justice, infinite in love, Father, whenever we stop to think about that, it's really, um, I want to say remarkable, but it kind of blows my mind that you would choose to come and love us. Not because we're so lovable, Father, because I know what my sin looks like. Um, just from my perspective, so I can't imagine how awful it looks from yours. But Lord, you loved us anyway. You loved us so much that you took on, you became flesh, John says. And you dwelt among us. Um, Father, that's incredible. And I pray that we would see how loving a Savior we have. How loving our God is. And that would change the way that we live. So Father, today I pray that our hearts would be changed. Where we would stop rejecting your authority over our lives. That we would stop rejecting um, your, your goodness in our lives. That we would stop responding with indifference to who you are and what you've commanded. Instead, we would respond by worshiping you and acknowledging your superiority to us in every way. So, Father, today I pray that we would respond rightly to who you are and what you've done. So, Father, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would move us and that you would change us. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.